Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. We said, we're not going to do the vertical, we're not going to do horizontal. Instead, let's be roadmap driven. If you review our roadmap document, there's a section on key learnings from the past. And then there's a section on the three or four strategic areas we're investing in in the next quarter. So we thought, okay, these strategic themes are very coherent. A lot of the projects on them are kind of homogenous, but they span the full stack. They also span different functional areas. Why don't we try that? Why don't we have themes aligned to themes? Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Ahmad Elwani, CTO and co-founder at Lexion joins us to discuss navigating the dilemmas you face in the messy in-between phase that startups get into as they scale up. We talk about the dilemma between optimizing for vertical or horizontal teams and how to navigate trade-offs when choosing your approach to scaling. And Ahmad shares his approach for aligning teams based on strategic themes or complete units of value on the company's product roadmap. Plus, how effective consensus building could be your key to sustaining velocity. We deconstruct Ahmad's favorite interpersonal facilitation techniques and approaches to building consensus as a means to generate velocity. Let me introduce you to Ahmad. Ahmad Alwani is the CTO and co-founder of Lexion. Lexion is a powerfully simple operations workflow and contracting platform that helps teams get deals done faster. Lexion was one of the first AI companies to leverage LLMs in building production quality applications. Prior to Lexion, Ahmad held principal engineering roles at Microsoft Research, working on Microsoft's core AI products, specifically as founding and lead engineer on their core conversational AI and NLP platform, as well as their AI scheduling assistant. Enjoy our conversation with Ahmad Elwani. To kick off our conversation, just wanted to say welcome, Ahmad. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Wednesday. How are you doing? What's going on in your world? Uh, I'm good. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. It's a very typical close to end of, end of quarter. So our quarters end up in October. So at this time, we get very busy because a lot of B2B business happens this time of the month. I love it. I love the amount of energy that goes into it. Uh, it can be a little overwhelming at times because there's so much going on, but it's also better than the alternative. I'd rather be too busy doing good things than just sitting doing nothing. Absolutely. Well, and what a critical sort of time of the year for anybody sort of in the B2B space, because I feel like everybody's rushing to close off things because then all of a sudden all the holidays stack up and it's so hard to then move something forward to closing. That's exactly right. So you and I were talking a little bit ago about the life cycle of a company and some of the different phases that occur and, and what that's like. And, and you shared a really interesting dilemma that engineering organizations can face, specifically sort of in this in-between scale-up phase. And so I wanted to zoom in, like, let's start there. What have you noticed like during this scale-up phase or during this in-between moment? Tell us about some of the observations that you've noticed right there and whether that's at Lexion or, you know, in other companies that you've observed. 
Absolutely. So one thing that's been really undergoing here at our team and at our current size is we're at this awkward stage where we're not anymore a very small team and a very early stage startup. And we're also not a much larger organization where we have a huge team and you have a lot of options on how to structure the organization. We're in this in-between phase and there's a lot of literature. You can get a lot of books and blog posts and have a lot of conversations about how to have a good well-functioning early stage engineering team uh, as a unit of like maybe four or five engineers working together. There's also a lot of literature on how to scale like a gigantic team. It's kind of like if you now have maybe a few dozen or a few hundred engineers, various strategies on how to have them organized and collaborating together. But there's not that much on this like transition. So how do you get from point A to point B? And we're at that transition point. Uh, We hit it maybe when we got to somewhere between 20, 25 engineers, where it wasn't possible to continue doing what we're doing anymore. Stand-ups are getting a lot longer, and people are just working on very different projects, but are sitting in the same technical reviews, maybe that they don't have enough context about. Uh, We're starting to see signs of slowdown. People can get a little bit disengaged. So it's clear to me that this is not working. And now we have to think about breaking the team into smaller units, uh, but in a way that doesn't impact us negatively, at least try to minimize any negative impact. And that's been super top of mind for me. I've been talking about it with a lot of the team and many of our engineering leaders, just to brainstorm, how do we want to do this? Uh, how do we want to structure it? And we ended up coming with something, I'm not sure if it's novel or if it's common. I, I haven't read about it anywhere else. My guess is that it's maybe more common than I think, but it's just some interesting approach that's working well so far for us. And especially that we realize this is an interim state. I don't think we're going to be in this approach for a long time, but only until we kind of get to that next level of scale and then we can revisit it. I've worked in large organizations prior to Lexion. Uh, I was at Microsoft and I've worked in really, really big teams, part of product teams, and I've worked in smaller but still big research groups. And typically in these organizations, there are multiple strategies. Some of them are you can divide your team horizontally, right? So you can have your data team, your middle tier, your API, your front end team, and then have every team responsible of that part of the code base and the product. So that's one approach. Another approach is to start dividing the product vertically, right? So you can have teams owning different functional areas of the product. And then their focus, often these teams will have to collaborate together because features interact. But still, everybody owns a slice and they're very focused on it. And typically, this could be done in a monolith uh, where you just kind of like divide the code base or it can be done in a microservices world or services world where you now literally start actually breaking out the code into separate independent units and have each team own it. And these are two of the most common ones. Uh, There are other strategies Some organizations would have one of these two approaches, but also have what they typically call, uh, sometimes they call them the Spartan teams, or like it's a special team uh, that's like a small, more broad team that just jumps around and tries to make them more efficient. Because once you have one of these two approaches, there are some downsides that you have to deal with. Uh, But we honestly didn't want to do either of those. Uh, They didn't really make sense to us. Uh, So for example, breaking the product into horizontal slices and kind of like having an API team, front end team, This requires too much coordination and you lose like the value of like the full stack engineer and somebody who's like fully aware of the whole feature end to end can work really close with product and customers and even go to market teams and develop the whole thing across the whole stack. Maybe not individually, but have a few people build it together, not have dependencies. You don't want to end up in a position where you have the back end ready, but the front end team didn't have resources. So now you're stuck and it's sitting there. So just a lot of things go wrong in that world. 
And then let's take the alternative approach where you do it into slices and functional areas. You end up with a huge risk. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Conway's law. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's exactly that what happens. People end up shipping their org charts instead of what's really more valuable for the business and the customer. Uh, and we didn't want to do that either. And that's how we ended up with deciding on trying something very different. It's working well for us, not without its defects that I'm, I would also love to highlight because it's all trade-offs. Yeah, so I was wondering if you talk a little bit more about the trade-offs because I think what I've appreciated so far when you're when you're talking about the different considerations and how you've arrived at the model that you're hypothesizing will work for you is being really conscious of those trade-offs and essentially choosing the trade-off that you want to make really consciously. And I think when talking with a lot of engineering leaders, like that's like the number one thing is like ultimately like you're going to have to make trade-offs, but be aware of the one that you're going to make. Can you share a little bit more about like what was that discussion like? How did you weigh the trade-offs and then ultimately land on the model that you wanted to build your team around? You have to decide what's important for your company at the current stage. What I love about this is that a big part of this is really a business decision, not a technical decision. Uh, so at various uh, points in a company's life, you have very different goals, right? In the very early stages, for example, you might be hyper-optimizing for velocity and innovation. Later on, like a much more mature company, you might be really optimizing for reducing risk. You don't want to break customers' experiences and things like that. So we started by really thinking about what's important for us in the current phase. We really value a few things. We really value being able to move fast and maybe not as fast as a very early stage company, but we, one of our biggest differentiators in the marketplace is that we are moving and shipping a lot of stuff and our customers really appreciate it. We would often talk to a potential customer and maybe they're not ready to buy, but we demo and we tell them what's on our roadmap. And then we would demo to them six months and they'd be like, oh, you actually shipped the stuff that you said you would. This is very unusual. So I didn't want to lose this. And then a very big thing that we value is just experimentation, being a really AI-centric company. Uh, we have to be able to try things out quickly, fail fast, and run experiments at scale in a way that makes us decide which path to take. When you're building an ML-centric company, the decision tree is too broad. You're not only optimizing for product experience, but you're optimizing for which model you're going to use, how are you going to train it, how are you going to manage your data. It's just an explosion of options. So unless you have a capability to quickly trim parts of the decision tree, you end up in analysis paralysis. And last, one uh, big thing we care about is really customer experience. We're one of these companies where we feel our customer base has been neglected and the tools they have had historically are ugly, clunky. They get the job done, but they're miserable using them. Uh, they're very hard to use and configure, typical enterprise tools. And we wanted to just completely flip that. So we want to give them beautiful experience, more like consumer level UX, but in an enterprise setting. And we wanted to be able to do that and accomplish that. It's really easy to make a list of goals. I think one important thing is also decide what you're actually going to sacrifice. And we, we had to have that discussion too. So what are we going to sacrifice? Maybe we should not have to worry right now an immediate revenue, for example, like we are comfortable with making some forward uh, like bets and things that will pay off in the long run versus trying to optimize too much for closing every deal that we could right now. And there's things like that. There's, we have like a longer list. I don't want to bore you with all the details, but we came up with this list and then we decided, okay, how can we now knowing these goals, how can we actually structure the team in a way that meets them? One more question about, about the trade-offs here. So when you're talking about, because this question of what are you willing to sacrifice, I think is so hard because I feel like the temptation is there's so much that we want to do and optimize for because there's, like you said, the decision tree of experiments, 
all of the possibility that an early stage company sort of embodies. So when you're going through that conversation of what are we willing to sacrifice, were there maybe controversial is not the right word, but were there ones that were sticky or hard to sort of reason areas of sacrifice that you had to make? Like what, what were the hard decisions? I'll give you a very good example. So one very tough decision in our strategy on how we structure the team is should engineers uh, working together, do they have to be working with the dev lead who's also their manager, their people's manager? Often engineering teams would have a person who is the manager, the people's manager of the group, but also kind of that team is working together. Or can we give this up and it's okay for engineers to be working on a teams that their manager is not actually on? And this has some complexities. For example, now maybe the manager is not super aware of everything that on the day-to-day of the reports uh, and it makes their job a little harder. It also means that it's on their direct report to explain to the manager their contribution and make sure that they are supported. And that's something that was tough for us to let go, but we decided that it's worth it for now. And we could afford it because our team is very proactive. We don't really require that much management. Our managers are fairly senior and are able to kind of step in when needed. And we decided that that's something we're going to sacrifice for the next 12 months. So we ended up in a, with a plan where a lot of people actually only see their managers in one-on-one and review meetings, but don't see them in the daily stand-up. That's fairly unusual. And it's something that some of the people on the team felt might backfire. Like, okay, maybe that's not going to work for me, or maybe that's one report, maybe on the more junior side needs a little bit more hand-holding, and I'm worried. Uh, but we sat down, we discussed it at length. Sometimes you have to take it to like the individual level. Let's not talk abstractly. Let's talk concretely. Who are you actually concerned about? Maybe we can make a special exception for this handful of people and still be able to get away with it. Uh, so that's an example. There are similar things. So it was a very lively discussion. And uh, another big area that I can touch on a little bit in more detail later in the conversation is like, how do we manage things like on-call and rotations? Uh, there are some pretty strong trade-offs. So what we ended up doing is we said, we're not going to do the vertical. We're not going to do horizontal. Instead, let's be roadmap driven. So we have a very good, well-thought process led by great product people in our team. And our head of products is just fantastic and very has a great methodology where we divide our roadmap into strategic themes. And it's really driven uh, by learnings from the past and what the market is telling us. So if you review our roadmap document, there's a section on key learnings from the past. And then there's a section on the three or four strategic areas we're investing in in the next quarter. And we kind of try to really take on projects that align with these themes so we're not too distracted and specifically postpone everything that doesn't uh, really align with those. So we thought, okay, these strategic themes are very coherent. A lot of the projects on them are kind of homogenous, but they spend the full stack. They also spend different functional areas. Why don't we try that? Why don't we have teams aligned to themes? An example of a strategic theme might be, hey, this quarter we want to focus on unlocking larger enterprise companies and building things for bigger organizations. Another example of a theme is maybe next quarter we want to maybe really improve our trial and first-run experience. Uh, a third one is, hey, we have invested in this really cool AI technology and we want to have a theme about commercializing it and getting it in the hand of customers. So that's what we ended up doing. Uh, we decided that we're going to look at every theme, see what's the skill mix it needs. And regardless of reporting structure, let's get a subset of people from the team that have the right skill mix and put them together, give them a time to kind of like learn the theme, gel, and then start executing, irrespective of really kind of like who they report to or what they've worked on in the past. Um, and that's the world we're in right now. It works really well because when you are working on a coherent set of projects, you can kind of understand the business problem. You can talk to the same set of customers and learn a lot about that problem you're trying to solve. It really, really even makes things like go-to-market and pricing strategy easier. 
and people just don't feel distracted. If you are working on a project, sub-project, let's say, let's take the example of serving larger enterprise companies. Enterprise companies really care about access controls and user management. So if this is one of the projects and you're working on it, you're also aware of what are the other projects in this theme that are relevant. So now let's say you're also doing single sign-on. You are sitting right next to the engineer and very closely involved in that project, and you can build your user management in a way that jives well with single sign-on. I think what I love about it is it's narr- it's story-driven in terms of the objective that you're trying to unlock. And there's a really clear connection between that focus and that theme and what it's what it's serving, especially in the short term, because in startups, things change so fast. So like that focus on the quarter, identifying the strategic themes and then rolling everything up into those, that just seems really elegant. And I think that's great. So you were sort of talking about the sequence of that kickoff of forming a new team and then addressing a strategic theme. Can you share a little bit more about what does that like kickoff or beginning look like? Because you talked about like identify the skills that are needed, learn the theme, and then get the team together to gel and then operate, execute, things like that. Talk a little bit more about what does that process look like? Absolutely. So we do our QBR once a quarter, like the whole organization sitting in one room and reviewing the whole roadmap and understanding kind of like why are we investing in this specific area? And then before actually that step, there's a pre-processing step, which is we, I sit with the engineering dev leads and we come up like with a list of everybody we already have, what are like their strengths and where can they contribute the most. This includes their actual strengths, like maybe they're a very strong back-end coder, uh, maybe they're very good at system design, and also what have they historically worked on? Because if we can align somebody who's worked on something in the last year, that's really aligned, then they're going to hit the ground running. So we just kind of like try to uh, analyze the team that way and start putting people into these units and identifying the gap. And this will influence our hiring strategy. So maybe if, we're, if we have a certain number of headcount the next quarter, we should really try to hire the people that will fill these gaps. Uh, we make sure we have consensus. People are also in a good spot. Like we don't want to just be, have people feel that they're just kind of like jumping around randomly. It has to be done in a good and respectful way where they still kind of are working on something they enjoy. We're balancing also their needs. So different engineers will have different needs. Some of them might value growth. Some of them might value learning. Some of them might value just like learning a new technology. So let's try actually to put this into the mix. And it's kind of like a a problem with a lot of constraints. It's not trivial, but if you do it with, with enough kind of diligence, you can end up with like a very good solutions. And it works when the team is small. So if you have a team of like 25 engineers, you can kind of like still solve the optimization problem. I'm sure if the team grows too much, it's going to be, become very hard to solve it. Uh, and I think we, we've, we've done a good job at it. And there will always be edge cases. So maybe we've done this and then there's like a few people who they would be really good for this theme. But you know what? They have made it clear to their manager that they want to learn this technology. So, okay, let's do the right thing. Let's kind of like do a trade-off and maybe just take this into account. And now we have a bunch of teams. Uh, we call them virtual teams, V-teams. And we decide to say, hey, this team will own this team, this team will own these other two, and that last team will own the fourth. And then we go into the QBR and actually have a, after we review the roadmap and make sure everybody's on board, we would tell them, hey, this is, uh, we actually use mountain mountain names. So we have Team Rainier, Team Olympus, Team Glacier. These are all Washington State mountains. And then we say, hey, this is the team. These are the people in this team. They're going to own this. And then we have a discussion and make sure everybody's on board with the plan. First off, the naming, the nomenclature of the teams, huge fan as a, as a fellow Pacific Northwest resident. Um, and I also think like nothing more symbolic and inspiring for a startup journey than talking about summits and peaks and long endurance journeys together. I think there's like, there's some good layered symbolism there. Yeah, I can't take credit for that one. It was uh, some, some, somebody on the team came up with it, but I loved it and I just felt right. I love it. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over 
over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. We, we've talked a little bit about the team structure or like the, the structure that's been organized here. We talked a little bit about the other models that folks like sort of get stuck in between. And then we were talking about the trade-offs in the middle. And so you had mentioned we can kind of dive into, you know, now that we have a sense of what did you land on, and then we can talk about how the trade-off conversation fit within what you landed on. So bring us back to the trade-off discussion and, and how that fits within the context of the model you shared. Absolutely. So I mentioned a lot of the things that work well. Let me now talk about the things that we don't think are great. Very big one of them is the one that I already mentioned on just kind of like having people not report to the managers. We've discussed this one. So I'm going to move to a new one. As any SaaS company, we have an on-call rotation. There's always a set of engineers who are primary and secondary and responsible to be points of contact to deal with issues as they arise, whether it's an alarm, automated, or a customer complaint, whatever it is. So the problem now is if you have these themes, how do you manage the on-call the people are moving around. So you don't have somebody who's an expert in part of the code base. And you can say, hey, whenever an incident happens in that area, just give it to that sub team. This team really changes all the time. So we had that very serious issue where, like, how do we even come up with an on-call loop? Uh, who do we put on it? And what happens if the person on-call now gets an incident that they've never interacted with in the past? Uh, how do they deal with it? This was a big point of friction. We ended up solving for it by coming up with a good escalation policy and making sure that we have really good documentation so that the on-call person is not necessarily responsible for solving the issue, but at least for in understanding impact, triaging, and assigning to the right person. Uh, so we ended up with kind of like something that works, but it wasn't easy. The tooling had to be configured a certain way. We had to document a good process. We had to do a lot of training on it and make sure that people don't feel it's a, already a stressful situation when you get paged. So you want to make sure that that person doesn't only have to worry about the page, but also like, what do I do now? Like, yeah, I, I'm getting an alert about something I've literally never even seen the code for. So that was one big thing that I think was not easy. Uh, another one was hiring. So typically when you're hiring, you are hiring for a specific team. And the, the people who interview would mostly be from that one team. You would maybe have like a bar raiser from outside or something like that, but it's easy. Now that the teams are shifting all the time, and we're not necessarily hiring for this quarter, maybe we're hiring for next quarter and it takes time to ramp up, who's on the loop? The people who are kind of like hiring that person might end up not working with them next quarter. So this meant that we needed to have a good interviewing and hiring process that allow us to more like hire for Lexion, not hire for individual team. And this requires putting some thought upfront into what are like the skill sets that we're going to need generically, uh, looking a little bit ahead into future roadmaps and understanding what a mix of skills we need to hire for. And it, it made it a little harder. We were able, again, to work around it, but it's not, it wasn't smooth. Uh, surely, if we had taken one of like the more traditional approaches, that problem wouldn't have even existed. So you end up with things like that that just require now you kind of created a problem uh, with your solution. And at every point you identify a problem, I think you have to pause and decide, okay, is this really worth it? Are we like doing something that's too, too unorthodox and maybe we should just backtrack and revisit? Or do we think we can actually solve this problem? You should give yourself a budget of an amount of problems to solve. And then if this becomes too much and you feel like you're constantly solving problems because of your approach, you really should be open to revisiting this. And maybe people don't do it this way for a reason. And I should kind of go back to the general wisdom. 
Tell me more about the budget of problems to solve. Like, what, what's kind of the threshold? That, like, do you have like a window or a threshold? Like, what types of problems are you talking about? Is it like the friction of dealing with maybe a hiring process that's a little bit different? Like, do you give yourself three problems of that magnitude? Like, what does that budget look like? First, discovering the problem comes in an interesting way. Typically, one or two people will just like ping you on Slack and like send you a message like, hey, what do we do? Like, I'm, I'm stuck. Like, I need to hire that person. I, I don't know what to do. So you keep getting these like nudges on just issues. And they're usually, our team is generally very thoughtful. And when they come to me with a problem, I get take it seriously because I know that they're reasonable people and they've pro- probably tried hard to get it done without even bubbling it up to me. I typically maybe try, if, if I feel like I'm dealing with like a problem every week during the quarter, then something is wrong. Uh, but if I'm dealing with two or three problems at the beginning of a process change and we kind of like flag them all and then they stop. So now we can kind of like have a static list of issues to solve. And we know that if we address them, then we're back to business. Then I think it works well. So I think I wouldn't do it based on count, but more based on timing. Uh, Like I want to be able to uncover all these issues early on and have confidence that we've addressed them versus having this trickling consistent set of issues coming up which can be very randomizing, it can be very distracting, and honestly, it will affect morale if people cannot focus on their jobs and are just like every week or two dealing with like a new challenge. I love this concept of budgeting based on problems to solve because I think that's such a good threshold for almost like assessing even like the types of process that you have to introduce to your teams, especially as like you're evaluating new things that are being launched. And so talking about timing versus count, what would you do in a situation where maybe you are encountering one problem per week in that quarter that is signaling to you that maybe like this is not worth it like then then what happens in that moment we have various focus groups i have a specific focus groups of kind of like uh, more senior engineers who have more experience and have seen the movie before in different companies and typically if i start seeing this trickle of issues i would call a meeting with this small group i would write a, a document we are a very document driven company and i will try to summarize like here are all the issues we're dealing with Let's brainstorm, like, how do we want to deal with this? Should we do something as drastic as revisiting the whole approach? Or do we think that these are manageable? And then we would treat this as just a triage list. We would kind of, like, go through them in a meeting, an hour, one hour meeting or so, and, like, say, okay, this is manageable. This is a big thing. And often I would send this ahead of time to give people a chance to think about it and then come to me with suggestions. I also would really try to talk with them one-on-one, give the context, So that by the time we're actually having a group meeting, people are not just kind of like discovering the problem for the first time. I feel that's unfair and it kind of puts them on the spot and they don't have time to think about it. One thing that has really helped me personally in these discussions is we should be really clear on what we're trying to accomplish. And I think it's more important to agree on the solution than it is to agree on the problem. If we're solving generically, if we have a vague problem, you end up going into these very long discussions, jumping from thing to thing and like losing track. Okay, like, okay, what did we say we're going to do again? And then you maybe have solution A and then you keep going and now you're at like discussing point D, but you accidentally broke A and you're not sure. So one thing I really ask my team to do and I also do myself, at the beginning of the document, there should be a very clear list of what are the problems, few bullet points, these are the issues. And it's even better if we can also write things that we're explicitly not solving for. And this gives us an affordance where as we're brainstorming and having these arguments, if we're ever coming up with a new uh, proposed solution, let's actually take it back and run it by this list. So, okay, we come up, we're going to do this thing. Does it help us on some of the things we want to accomplish? Great. 
can we confirm that it's actually not violating any of the things we're going to accomplish? And then this makes you incrementally reach a better solution. I see a lot of teams often get into the discussion part without defining the problem. And then you end up in these cyclical discussions. It can become very, it can really wear you down. And at the beginning of a call or in one-on-ones, if we can actually agree on the problems, and I, something I, I even go as far as saying, this is the time to call out a problem or an issue that you think we should take into consideration. I don't want to end up like kind of like having a discussion and get, being 80% at a solution and finding like a new requirement pops up that completely blows it out. So it's very important to be very thoughtful and putting the work up front, try to identify these things. So again, we avoid having these uh, tough discussions. The f- interpersonal facilitation here really gets me fired up uh, because I think it's it sounds so effective and it's really helpful in terms of alignment, not just with the solution, but with people. And so cluing into a few different things that you've shared, you had mentioned a couple comments about, you know, some people thought like this approach or this structure might backfire. And we discussed at length about some of those concerns. I'm imagining this model is probably at play behind the scenes. And then, you know, another thing you'd mentioned was like this question of how do we prevent people like from feeling that we're moving around randomly with that thoughtfulness at play, like I want to deconstruct a little bit more about the that approach in terms of investing in, in building consensus. Can you share a little bit more about, you know, more about those discussions, the proposals and facilitating that with with different folks, like especially like when it came to like the team structure decision and getting folks on board with that? Consensus is a very hard topic. And it's, uh, I think, a serious one because it has impacts on morale and people like feeling that they're unhappy and leaving. And you can get a, a really bad problem if you're not good at accomplishing some form of consensus. Uh, One thing that's worked really well for me is to always start with the smallest group possible and building consensus from like the smallest unit and growing up. So I try to really have one-on-one discussions as many as I could. Often, maybe you can't have a discussion with everybody, but at least discuss people who this will directly impact and maybe sample from the rest to get a representative opinion. These one-on-one discussions are invaluable. They help you uncover blind spots, but they help you get real candid feedback Often people will be more open and change their opinions in this more intimate setting. And it's easier to kind of like have this argument in a closed, small environment. And then don't go from that straight to kind of like, let's have a staff meeting with 30 people in the room. Next, let's kind of like group, get like a smaller focus group and start having these people who have already kind of accomplished some level of one-on-one consensus to try to achieve a small group consensus. Typically at this stage, some more issues will bubble up. Sometimes they're manageable and you can solve on the spot. Sometimes they require, okay, we've identified a couple of things. Maybe we should have this committee go and figure it out and come back to us with the next focus group meeting to address it. And only at that point, when we feel that this specialized focus group has figured out a solution that seems promising, then let's kind of go and make it a big discussion. Before we bring everybody on board, we have to write it down. We have to have a good way to communicate it. And we have to also make it clear that this is not final. So it's not like this committee doesn't make mistakes or this focus group doesn't make mistakes. Let's frame it as here's a proposal that is well thought that we invested in coming up with. But this is still like a request for comments, kind of like a town hall meeting. Here's what we're thinking. Do you have concerns? Did we miss anything? If you've done the work, the work upfront, as I described, often you, you have a like a bulletproof plan and people will not raise really major issues, maybe some smaller issues here and there. Uh, but it does happen every once in a while that like you've completely missed something and somebody calls it out. And that's fine. We accept that. I would just say, okay, this is a serious issue and we need to go back to the drawing board. Let's not waste everybody's time. Let's pause here. Let's regroup in a couple of days after we've solved it. And sometimes we can just solve it on the fly. But this whole building consensus is critical. And again, it really comes down to agreeing on the goal. And just kind of starting with the why, I know this is like such a cliche now, but it's just such an important concept. 
in my very first one-on-one with every new team member, one thing I always mention, please do not write a line of code, write a single line in a dot in a spec. Do not like do any piece of IC work without having a very clear understanding why you're doing it and being having conviction that it's important to do. It's going to help Lexian as a company. It's going to help your career because it has impact. And you have to have that conviction and understanding, or you have to ask and keep asking until you get that conviction or until, until this project gets killed. But if you find yourself working on something that you don't understand why it's happening, this is a huge red flag. This is going to impede your career. This is going to impede the company. If it's not aligned with one of the core company KPIs, whether it's retention or revenue or, I don't know, like bottom line, whatever working on this quarter, if you can't tie it to this, then you really need to pause and reevaluate. If I'm asking you your opinion on a process change and you don't really have a good understanding on what the problem we're trying to solve is, then let's pause. Let me share all the problem again, make sure you really understand it, and then we can start problem solving. I think what, what people don't understand is how deeply passionate you are about velocity and how much you and Gaurav spend talking about is what we're doing, like ensuring that we maintain a high velocity within our, our organization. And so I think to frame some things like folks are hearing, wow, we're spending a lot of time on consensus building. We're asking folks, you know, before they even start to, you know, quote unquote, do work output to really critically think about and, and record how does this align with what we're doing? You know, I imagine the narrative is like, oh my gosh, that seems like a lot of work. Like, why does this equal velocity? So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about like how much you care about velocity and then how does this connect back to like ultimately like helping improve, increase, sustain high velocity within the company? I care too deeply about velocity because it's time is a startup's most valuable resources. I think it's existential. If you're not moving fast enough, you're, you're probably not going to make it. I care about it enough that at least once every two or three retrospectives, teammate retrospectives, I make it the topic and I ask the question, what are the things slowing us down? And we brainstorm everybody. We have a shared document. People put their things, their, the things that are slowing them personally down. And then we kind of like vote on them and try to discuss the top three things that everybody agrees is slowing the whole team down. Like this is just such a topic I'm very passionate about. And I, I, it, I agree that it might sound at odds with like the amount of work that goes into consensus building. But this is an instance where I think the ROI is high. Putting the investment upfront might slow you down, but having a good process means you're going to get a much more efficient uh, execution uh, strategy going forward for a long time. So there are a lot of areas where I don't like to waste time. So if somebody kind of like, often somebody will try to impose a process and hey, maybe we need to have three code reviewers on every code review. And then I'll have a very negative reaction to that. I'm going to be like, this is going to make like shipping everything take a week instead of like a few hours. So let's really evaluate if it's worth it. And I will ask myself that question, like, am I investing too much time in trying to do this project of getting the team to work in a certain way? And I asked myself the alternative question. Okay, if I don't do this, I think we're going to end up in a point where this will complete chaos. People like are just jumping around, randomly working on different parts of the code base. We can't onboard new engineers because they don't have a focus area. So it feels like the cost is too great. And we decide that as a group, I also ask my team and we decide that, no, this is something that we should invest in. It will slow us down for a few weeks, but in a few months, we're going to appreciate that we have done it. The perspective there is so powerful because it can be the anxiety in the short term can be so present of like, oh my gosh, there's all these things that I'm missing. But if you don't address like the short term inefficiency, then it's going to have that huge long term impact. Yeah. And I didn't answer your question on just like me and Gaurav and Velocity in general. Uh, we've both worked at various teams in our careers where you, we just have like low efficiency. There's just too much overhead. Slowdown can come from many reasons. It can be a bad process. It can be like too many layers of decision-making. It could be just not, like not good philosophy on how to make decisions even. And I think we just both 
really value having a lean, efficient team. And it's really even impacted the way we hire. So we've hired, we started hiring fairly senior folks. We wanted to build a strong foundation. And let's not start hiring a lot of people until we feel that they can come on a solid foundation and contribute fast. So we started hiring more senior and then later on starting bringing on more junior when we had the processes, like a CI/CD pipeline, automated testing, good, good documentation, all that stuff we delayed. And then we also understand that as the team grows, communication becomes harder. You need like a lot of more management work. Uh, you need to kind of invest a lot more in getting alignment. So we try to keep the team the smallest possible size to hit our goals. It can become very attractive, especially when you're well-funded or you have good revenue growth, just like go and keep hiring, hiring, hiring. But you end up very quickly in this position where you hire like five engineers, but you're really getting the output of like one engineer. And realistically, you're never going to hire five and get the output of five, but you want to get hire five and get maybe 4.75, not lose that much. And that's the world that we try to be in. It makes you build a more sustainable business. It's really good for your uh, P&L. It's good for team morale, like people kind of know each other. You don't get in this world where there's just so many people, nobody knows what everybody else is doing. I know there's a time and place for that, but just being at our current stage, we're enjoying the fact that we can be lean and mean and not grow too fast. Going back to the the one-on-one retrospectives, uh, like with the theme being addressing velocity, do you have a favorite category where everybody came together and had consensus around here, the top three things? Like, were there any that were your favorite or were surprising that you want to want to share with folks and that you addressed? There were some, uh, I wouldn't say they're my favorite, some of them are my favorite, but some of them were very clearly high impact. It's beautiful when you have, when you identify a bunch of things where like it's clear that everybody agrees and it's a low hanging fruit. And if we solve this, there's like low, zero risk in it not helping. Uh, so examples are, hey, we want a better process to make sure product specs are always ready and reviewed by the time the sprint starts. Simple process change, making sure that product is a little ahead of engineering, product design their heads. Doing just this means that your engineers are not sitting blocked. Another big one, major one that I think is a very common thing for engineering teams is code review velocity. So this uh, bubbled up in the last one where people like said, hey, we just don't have our code review sit open for a few days. Nobody's coming, giving us feedback. It's ready, but I can't merge it. So identifying that and we, one of our, my, my senior engineers did a fantastic job coming up with a good policy. How do we prioritize code reviews? Everybody has to chip in. It's a core part of the job. And there's like a certain even SLA on how soon you're expected to get a response. And if you're engaging with a, somebody who wrote some code, how fast you should respond to their questions. And this helped a lot. And what helped also is that when we identified the issue, we put in place the metrics. So now we have a report that comes every week measuring the time to code review, the time to merge, and we can uh, quantitatively make sure that this new process is helping. So that helped a lot. And then the third one was kind of new and it kind of snuck up on me. So maybe this falls into a bucket of surprise. We started spending a lot of our engineering time dealing with support. So the product is a lot bigger. We now have a lot of customers, hundreds of customers and like thousands of daily users on the site. So now the engineers are not having time to focus on their core features and instead like having to deal with these issues and help uh, even not necessarily fix issues, but maybe answer questions for the sales teams or the marketing teams. So um, that was an issue and we came up with a process that maybe have like a few people be the shield for the team and it's a rotation and they can take this on so everybody else is not distracted. And then now the other people can continue to focus on their jobs and get back to that velocity. So these are just three examples. The, The document actually has probably more than three or four dozen items. But every time we prioritize it, we triage it, and then we try to solve the a few things. And then we pick it up the next retrospective. And I always start by asking, okay, here are the three things we identified last time. 
here's the solutions we came up with. Did they help? Did we sufficiently make a dent in this problem? Or should we continue to problem solve? I love it. This is going to be a high velocity transition to rapid fire questions, like knowing that, you know, velocity is a core value. So Imad, are you, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Let's do them. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? So I am reading a book called Scaling People. Uh, it's by Claire Hughes. I, I'm not sure if you've read it, but as you, it's very relevant to this topic. I am thinking about how can we grow the org in a sustainable way. She's a fantastic uh, leader. She, I think, was at Stripe and Google. And the book is really helpful in kind of like managing these transitions through company stages. When we started the company, I kept hearing from my founder friends, oh, as you grow, all these culture issues happen and you grind into these frictions. And I was like, surely that's not going to happen to us. Like, this sounds easy. We'll figure it out. And now we're actually in it. I understand everything they've told me. And I decided I can probably figure some of it out by brainstorming with my team. But there's some good literature. Let me go read some of these books and learn from other leaders' experience. And that's why I picked up that book. Man, I, I think we need to add that to the ELC reading list because I think that describes a problem that so many folks face at the stage that you're talking about. That's going all the way. We're extending that as far as we can. Thanks for sharing that. You won't be disappointed. It's a great book. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? I'll pick something kind of boring here. It sounds boring, but it's actually very efficient. Just having a good integration and using of productivity tools has been a superpower. So having a really good to-do app, a really good calendar app, and integrating these two things with your Slack and email inbox, it really allows you to scale yourself. So I was spending way too much time having a mental load of, I have these things I have to take care of, or hey, did I respond to that email and I don't want to lose this? Or maybe like this event, like just scheduling becomes hard. And I spent maybe a couple of weeks gluing a bunch of very off-the-shelf tools together. And now I'm in a state where when I get an important email, I can just send it to my to-do list or respond. And I have a really good framework of, do I need to respond to this now or just put it on the list or just not ever respond to it? Same with Slack, like Slack messages, being good at effectively creating either events or to-do items. It has the potential of making me dumber because now I'm not using my brain for these things anymore and I'm relying too much on tooling. But it's really freed my mind to now focus on important things like hiring and technical discussions and like go to market. And I really recommend it. It's, it's, it sounds like such an obvious thing. A lot of my friends who are startup founders come to me and tell me, hey, how, I mean, I'm drowning. Like, what do I do? I just show, share with them my setup and I'll just set these things up and just defer this to technology and it's going to give you back a lot of time. Do you have the quick, like, what's the tools that you're using to stitch it all together? Like, is it Zapier? I am. So I am using Microsoft to do Google Suite for email, and we use Slack. And then I'm using Zapier to just glue them all together. What is a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? This is something that started in the pandemic. I'm getting so many friends reach out to me randomly, like people I've worked with years ago on LinkedIn and like in email want to get into startups. It wasn't the same way before the pandemic, uh, especially in Seattle. Like there's like big, big company mentality here and people like to stick to like safe, stable jobs. Something changed in the last couple of years where almost every week somebody reaches out to learn about my experience and they want to do a startup and like learn how to do it. I do think there's like a very, all of a sudden, strong entrepreneurial itch, at least in this geography where I'm in. And I love it. I mean, Seattle uh, can definitely take advantage, like use a lot of great companies being founded here. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's going to keep going and if it's going to materialize into real companies, but it is something I've definitely noticed. And I'm not sure uh, what was the trigger. Maybe people were a little bit introspective during the pandemic or something, or maybe it's the layoffs. Uh, whatever it is, I'm rooting for it. I love it. The Seattle startup scene. Here we go. The emergence. Yeah. That'll, be, that'll be a fun moment. Last question, Matt. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? 
I, I like a modified version of a famous one. I'm sure you've heard it's not for startups, it's not a race, it's a marathon. I kind of agree with it, but I kind of modified it internally into like, it's not really a marathon, it's not a race, it's both. I think you have to appreciate that and know which, when, which is which. A lot of the startup projects require a lot of like, you have to just keep be persistent and keep pushing and do small incremental changes. And this is the marathon angle. Some projects, you have to act on them fast, especially with a new technology like Gen AI. You have to treat it as a race. First to market has a big advantage. And the successful leaders, I think, should be really good at deciding which is which. If you treat everything as a race, you're going to kill your team and nothing's going to get done. If everything is going to be a marathon, then I think you are going to be out-competed, like outmatched by a competitor. Every time, like Gaurav would often in our own ones tell me, hey, did you see this technology? Like, we need to do something now. I think about it. I tell them, okay, sometimes I agree with him. This is something where I think we need to drop things and get on it. Sometimes I tell them, actually, it will pay off to just like, not make like a big bombastic initiative. Let's actually keep our head to the ground. We have a good plan. We just need to be persistent. Let's follow the turtle strategy, not the hare. Steady and slow will win the race. So I think kind of like trying to apply this into every big decision we're making and deciding when to rush and when to treat it as like a more slow moving thing that will need a lot of time and a lot of stamina is a very critical thing. The dilemma of when to rush and when to, when to focus on endurance. What an existential question. Imad, thank you so much for an incredible conversation and just for being able to deconstruct your thought process. I mean, just so many different strategies and approaches and just the way that you assess trade-offs and really externalize all of the different ideas that you're working through there. I learned a ton from this conversation. So just wanted to say thank you for hanging out with us and having an awesome time. I had a fantastic time too. I really appreciate it, Patrick. And I, uh, yeah, I love the podcast and I uh, always kind uh, of be following what you guys come up with. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.